Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay. So before we get into Isaiah 49 today, I want to give you a quick little recap. And we've done this all the way through the book of Isaiah. We've been in the book since the 4th of July. We're going to be in the book until the end of the year. It's a long study. And every now and then I like to kind of hit pause and let's do just a quick recap on where we've been. So this is the brief history of the nation of Israel. Okay. Right around Genesis chapter 12, God calls this guy named Abraham out from among the pagan nations. This follows the event of the Tower of Babel when all the people of the world gathered together and said, let's build a name for ourselves. Let's build a structure that's as tall as heaven. It can reach all the way to heaven. Let's be as awesome as God. And God disperses the nations across the earth and scatters their languages. Right after that event, after all the nations are scattered, God speaks out to this man named Abraham and says, you come and follow me. Go to this land I'm gonna tell you about and I want you to um, follow me and I will make you the father of many, many nations. So Abraham obeys and through his obedience, the rest of Genesis on Exodus, we find out that his descendants become this great massive amount of people, like almost two million people. And they become slaves in Egypt And God raises up this man named Moses. They are freed from Egypt. They go out to this mountain uh, called Mount Sinai in the middle of the desert, the wilderness. Around Exodus chapter 19, God makes these people, Abraham's descendants, his nation. I'm going to make Israel my nation. And my goal for these people is that they will be the people who will model my ways and the nations will come and say, please teach us the ways of God Almighty. And he gave them a land to do it in, and he gave them a structure on how they're supposed to worship and how they're supposed to form this temple and the structure and and the Ark of the Covenant. And there's this entire system and, and structure and ways on how worship is supposed to go. And all of it models God's goodness. And the call that Israel, God's servant, is supposed to be doing is beckoning the whole world, come and see our God who made the entire world and come and learn his ways. But what happened is when they got into the land, they started looking at all the other nations and they started having a desire to want to worship like them. They wanted a king like the rest of the nations. They wanted these idols that were made in their own image. They wanted to be able to manipulate these images of God and eventually through a system of them going into idolatry and God redeeming them and them repenting and then them going back into it. And and it's a long process. It goes all the way to Joshua, Judges, all the first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. It's a long process. At the end of all the process, this servant becomes what the prophet Isaiah describes as blind because of Israel's desire to want to play the idolatrous nation like every other nation in the world and not be God's servant, they became blind. And so God says, I have a plan that I'm going to initiate now. And it's a twofold plan. Because of Israel's idolatry and their blindness, they were led away into exile and God says, my plan is that I'm gonna bring you out of exile. 
I'm gonna call you from Babylon. I'm gonna raise up, and, and here's the plan now. There's a, there's a two-fold plan. First, first part of it, I'm gonna raise up this guy named Cyrus. He's gonna be a Persian, and he's gonna come in, and he's gonna overcome the Babylonian empire, and he's gonna set you guys free, and, he's, and you're gonna go home. That's the first part of the plan. But once you're home, the second part of the plan is gonna initiate, and I'm gonna bring in this servant who is going to be able to accomplish the things that Israel was never able to accomplish. Now, the reason why I'm going through this entire history is because this servant is the subject of the book moving forward. Today, when we start Isaiah 49, this is the only thing that the prophet is talking about until we finish the book. And this is the reason why I gave you the recap. Because the servant is God's plan of redemption, not just for Israel and for all of the idolatry and for all of the blindness, but also to the rest of the world too. What Israel was supposed to be but could not accomplish, this servant will do on behalf of Israel. This servant will be the Israel that Israel could never be. And everything from chapter one all the way up to chapter 48, there's just references of this Messiah, this servant, this figure who's gonna be this great king. There's these hints of it, but as soon as we hit 49 today, the tone of the book shifts, and from this point forward, that's all we're talking about. It's just this coming servant. Now I want you to just for a moment think about why God chose to tell the prophet that his redemptive plan was gonna come through this servant. He describes the one who is going to redeem Israel, not as a mighty king, but as a servant, a servant. And that's not the point of what I'm studying today, but I want that to be rolling around in your head as we continue today and go through the rest of the book because that idea that God's plan to redeem mankind comes at the hand of a servant, not a sword, a servant. Now the servant's mouth will be like a sword, but the plan comes through a servant. God will serve his people through redemption. Now, the servant is not just talked about from 49 all the way up through the rest of the book. It's not just the entire focus of this prophet. This servant gets mentioned in other places in scripture as well. And when we get into the New Testament and we start learning about the life of Jesus, we start seeing these places all throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, the book of Acts, the book of Romans, where the New Testament writers reach back to Isaiah and pull out specific citations to draw the readers in to make the connection between the servant and Jesus. So here's where we're going today. From Isaiah 49 forward, the only subject we're going to be looking at is Jesus, because Jesus was the servant. Here's an interesting thing I wanted to show you. I found this earlier this week. It's uh, uh, kind of like a chart. Um, it's, it may be a little difficult, not may, it will be difficult for you to see, uh, but I wanna put it up on the screen and I will share it on Slack later so you can get a closer up view. But what you're looking at here is a cross section of all of the books in the Bible. 
okay? Um, if you'll go to the next slide, there's a line drawn down the middle. Every book to the right is an Old Testament book. And every book to the left is a New Testament book. Now, for those of you in the back with bad eyes, so like, I'm just gonna have to trust you because I can't see what any of that stuff is. But at the very top right, imagine it goes around in a clock format and then you'll see it closer up later. But at the top right, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and it goes all the way around to Malachi down at the bottom right. These are all of the Old Testament books. Okay, and then it starts over here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the orange ones, Acts, Romans, and it goes all the way over to the New Testament. What you're looking at is a cross section of every time in the Old Testament, or excuse me, every time an Old Testament verse is cited in the New Testament. Now, the reason why I'm showing you this is so that you can understand and see how much the New Testament writers drew from Deuteronomy and Exodus even Job and Psalms. But what I really want you to look at is this one right here. This is Isaiah. This is how many, so all of these little color lines feeding out of Isaiah feed into the New Testament. Now go to the next slide. You can see a little more clearly now. This is every New Testament book that references Isaiah. Now go to the next one. There are 63 direct citations word for word where the author quoted and pulled directly from the words of Isaiah in the New Testament. Isaiah is cited more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. The next one that comes even close is Psalms. Psalms is around like 58 or 59 times. But if you add in not just direct citations, but quotes. And you also add in allusions, which is when the writer is writing and he's, he's clearly pulling from an idea from Isaiah. He's not citing or quoting it, but he's using an idea that Isaiah used. When you add all of those in together, there's over 313 quotations and citations and allusions in the New Testament that are pulled just from the book of Isaiah. Now the reason why I'm showing you this is because I'm making a case today. And it's a case that I, some of you may feel like may not need to be made, but I feel like it's an important argument to be made and constantly revisited. Because if this argument is not at the forefront of your understanding of the entirety of this book, then you run the risk of using this book for your own purposes and not God's purposes. All right, are you ready? This book is all about Jesus. Okay, there's not a shift when we get to Matthew and then things are different than it used to be. No, all the way through, this entire book is, is shouting one message. Man has messed it up and God will do all of the work to fix it. And he will do that through Jesus. And Jesus will come through this nation that God chose. But it's important for us to remember that Jesus was not the backup plan. Jesus was always the only plan. 
And as we start reading through Isaiah 49, through the rest of the book today, what I want in your mind is this vibrant reality that Isaiah looked forward in time 700 years and saw the man Jesus and was trying to prepare the people for his coming. And when, they, when he finally showed up, the people missed it because they had read this and they had reformed it in their minds to look like something different. And if we're not careful, people who are 2,000 years removed from Jesus walking this earth can read this same thing and reform Jesus in our mind and look back on the wrong Jesus. And we can form our lives in such a way where we are convinced that we are highly religious, highly spiritually functioning people, and not actually disciples of Jesus. That you can give your life to something in this world and your, all of your affections, all of your treasures are given to this one thing, but it's not the treasure that was buried in the field and you haven't sold everything just to go and buy it. Not, you're not like Paul, you can't say, there is only one thing that I wanna give my life to. And I consider all of this suffering and it doesn't even compare to the glory that I'm promised in eternity because I've decided that there's only one thing I'm concerned with and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is a way to live out Christianity that is sold on every street corner in this country and it doesn't require anything of you. And then there is what is presented here a suffering servant who does everything that's needed to redeem you and then demands a response to follow him in his ways. And if that's not the Jesus that you're following, then you're following another version of an idol that all of mankind has been guilty of forming. Are you ready? Awesome, let's get to it. Go to Isaiah 49 and start in verse one. Listen to me, O coastlands. We talked about what coastlands are. It's the prophet's poetic way of saying every corner of the earth all the way to every stretch of the ocean. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain, and I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. 
Right, so just, just pause. We're listening to the servant speak about what God has given him as a mission for the earth. And we're at this place in verse six where it says the mission is too light if it's only redeem Israel. There's more to the mission than just bringing back the house of Jacob. What is the rest of the mission? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, if you don't have an ounce of Jewish blood running through your body, then you need to praise Jesus for that because you're counted among that group, Gentiles. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one who deeply despised the servant's going to be abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. The king shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate, prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So Isaiah is looking 700 years into the future and he sees God's servant and what does he see? He sees a servant that was named before he was born. Matthew 1, 21 through 23, do you remember when the angel appeared to Joseph before Jesus was born and said, you're gonna name him Jesus? Isaiah sees a servant whose weapon is gonna be his mouth, that his primary um, way of spreading God's kingdom will not be a sword, but it will be through word and through teaching. That he's gonna be hidden from his birth, but released at the right time like an arrow from a quiver. And his mission is gonna be greater than just redeeming the house of Israel, it's also gonna be a light to the nations. And, the, and that Israel, the nation, is going to despise him, but the, but the nations of the world will bow down to him. Now, we've only read the first seven verses. But I want you to understand that it continues to get richer as we go through the rest of the book. But at the time that Jesus was living in the first century, every Jewish person alive was familiar with Isaiah. Okay, this is like when we go to school, like you're taught how to read, like you're taught like there's certain maths you've gotta take. Like the Old Testament prophets was required reading in school. Every first century Jew alive knew God's word, and they knew that Isaiah was speaking of a coming servant who is going to redeem Israel. They knew the entire consciousness, consciousness of uh, first century Jewish, the, the nation, Israel, was aware that there is coming this servant, okay? This was a common thing, everybody knew it, everybody walked around knowing like, okay, and it was even, it was even more primed because they were living under the rule of Rome. Rome was in charge of them. Rome told them when they could go do this and how they could worship. So they were living under another oppressor just like they were at the time of Babylon even though they were home, they weren't in exile. And there was this feeling in the hearts of all the people, God, this has gotta get better soon. God's gotta do something. There is a promise that hasn't been fulfilled yet and we're just waiting for it. All of that that I just described 
is required understanding to truly understand what happened in Luke 4, 16 through 19, when Jesus walked into the synagogue and someone handed him a scroll that Isaiah wrote and he unrolled it and read it out loud, closed it up and said, behold, this has now been fulfilled in your midst. Every first century Jew is walking around with this concept, man, God is gonna do something. And then one random Saturday, they all show up to synagogue, and this guy who's been wandering around teaching in the countryside walks in, grabs the Isaiah scroll, we all know what's in there, opens it up and reads, the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Behold, this has now been fulfilled in your day. That verse doesn't really make sense unless you understand the consciousness of what people are walking around with on a regular basis when he actually does that. Jesus is standing in the synagogue and he boldly declares, I'm the servant you guys have been waiting for. Now can you start to understand the tension that was created? This wasn't just a guy who was walking around threatening the uh, governmental structure of how Rome and Israel worked. This is a guy who is declaring that I'm the one who the prophet 700 years ago spoke about and I'm finally here. Now I want you to keep that in mind as you go through and you read 8 through 13 because the prophet continues to expound upon this. He says in verse nine that this servant is going to tell the prisoners come out. He's gonna tell those walking in darkness to appear and see. I want you to think in the context of what Jesus was doing in his ministry, walking around, healing blind eyes, driving demons out of people in verses nine and 10. It says that the followers of this servant will feast on the road as they follow him. I want you to think about Jesus feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000 out in the middle of the fields. It says in verse 12 that nations from the north and the west will come to learn. I want you to think about what Jesus did in his ministry, and I want you to think about the day of Pentecost and what happened on that day when the message of the gospel spread to the rest of the world. I want you to, verse 13, when it says that there's gonna be singing, that all of heaven will break forth in song, that the servant's ministry will be marked by song. I want you to think about how every church in the world starts off their gathering with song. Can you start to understand the tension between the religious people and the Jewish people? Jesus is making this bold claim. I am not just a prophet. I am not just a wise man. I am the one, I am the only one. And that claim still ruffles feathers today. Because it wasn't just upsetting for Jesus to walk into the synagogue and say, hey, you want redemption? Gotta come through me. I'm the only way to God. It was as disruptive then as it is now for someone to stand and say, there are no other gods. There is only one God, and the only way to him is through his son, Jesus Christ. 
He was not just a prophet, not just a wise, smart man, not just a humble guy who was killed. He was the son of God and the only way to the Father. There are no other ways to make yourself right before a holy God. There is only pleading the blood of Jesus accepting the sacrifice that that servant made. That is as disruptive as it is today as it was back then. It is the reason why Christians are branded as intolerant. Because we boldly believe that there is no other way to be forgiven of your sins or to be right before a holy God except coming to Jesus. That's it. There is no other way. Go to Isaiah 49, verse 14. Because as the prophet is speaking this message to an exiled people, there's a response to the people. The prophet is saying God is going to do these amazing things through the servant and there's going to be singing and breaking forth of joy and the mountains are going to break into singing, but the people are going to respond, have you taken a look at where we're, we're living right now? I don't see a whole lot of singing. We're in exile. I lost my home. I watched my sons murdered before my very own eyes. I don't have anything left. I'm a widow now. So don't talk to me about singing and the good things God's gonna be doing when I'm in exile. God has forsaken me. You ever prayed that? You ever said that? Look at how far my life has fallen. Look how bad, don't tell me there's a good, loving God. My God has forsaken me. This is what he says to Israel. Israel in verse 14 says, but Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then God responds, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Look, even these may forget. So even if you do find a woman who forgets her child or has no compassion for the son in her womb, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. See, in this ancient civilization, slaves had their master's names engraved on their hands so you could tell whose property they were. And God is saying, I don't do things like that. I've engraved your name on my palms. Your builders, they make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. See, they all gather. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. You shall put them all on as an ornament and you shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallow you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. And then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone and where have these come from? He's describing a widow in exile 
who has now been redeemed by the Lord and has more children than she knows what to do with. She has been brought home and she has been given children. She has been given um, ancestors. She has been given a dynasty. She has been given a family. And there is so many of them, they're complaining about the house being too small. And she's saying, I don't know where these came from. Who brought me all these grandkids? And thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders and kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet and then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? or the captives of a tyrant be rescued. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant rescued. I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer and the mighty one of Jacob. Go to verse 1 and 50. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or where of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. What is he talking about? Man, he's, he's talking about people making their drink their own blood and eating flesh, and now we're talking about a, a, a mother who's got a certificate of divorce. What are we talking about? Like, this is poetry. He's using poetic language to communicate the passion that God has for the cry of his people that my God has forsaken me. God's response is, let me use some illustrations that you may understand to help you see this situation better. You cry to me, the Lord has forsaken us. Well, I, never, I didn't forsake you. You forsook me. You abandoned me. I, I didn't abandon you. You chose idols over me. That was you, not me. Show me, show me the, 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 the woman who's got a certificate of divorce that I gave to her. Show me that you are my wife that I sent away. I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. You did that. You played the harlot. You ran away and slept with other nations. You were the one who didn't want to be faithful to me, not me, to you. But in the midst of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring these nations to you and, and, and you're going to have more descendants than you know what to do with. And your oppressors, they're not going to be ruling over you. They're going to be eating their own flesh. Now, is he talking about cannibalism? No, that's not what he's saying. He's using poetic language that's fully charged with emotion to let them understand how the tables are going to be flipped so rapidly. You are in exile away in this desert land thinking you've got no family left. And in the blink of an eye, I'm going to turn everything upside down. And you're going to have more children than you know what to do with. And your enemy is not going to be lording over you. They're going to be hiding in a corner afraid for their lives. How is this possible? 
In verse two, he goes on and he says, look, when I came to you, there was, there was nobody. When I called to you, there was nobody to answer. In my hand, was it shortened? No. I can still redeem. Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea and make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for the lack of water and die of thirst. God's response is, I didn't abandon you. You abandoned me, but I've got good news. I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to redeem you through my servant. And when the servant finishes doing what he's going to do, there's going to be so much abundance and victory over the great enemy that is sin and death, and there's going to be so much family and legacy. You're not going to know what to do with. Now, Isaiah is speaking to Israel, but he's speaking to the broader sense of God's family because the New Testament tells us that we have been grafted in and we are now seeds of Abraham. So when we're reading this, we're understanding that God is not just talking to Israel. He's talking to all God's people. So I want you to think just for a moment what it, what it has been like. When you read verse 21, it says, where do these children come from? I was in exile and now I've got a full house. I want you to think of what the gospel message does to the church as a whole. Here's the beauty of following Jesus. You don't have to have children to have children. You don't have to have living relatives to have family. You don't need blood relatives to be alive. You don't need to have had a brother to have a brother. Are you see where I'm going with this? The New Testament is filled with all kinds of one kind of language. See, in the New Testament, there's not business owners, there's not employees, there's not customers. There's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. That's the language of the New Testament. And when you read through what God promises to do through an exiled people, I want you to start drawing those direct lines between what God has done in your life when you were alone, exile, non-believer, wandering in the wilderness, having things your own way, and what it looks like now to be connected to a church family filled with people who think about you, love you, call you, and pray for you all the time. Do you see where I'm going with this? There is a treasure that we don't talk about enough in the kingdom of God, and that is the inheritance we get in each other. When I come to saving faith, I get Jesus, but that's not all I get. I also get you. My kids get you. My kids now don't have just like, you know, four or six grandparents. Now they've got hundreds of grandparents. They don't just have each other as brothers and sisters. Now they've got tons of brothers and sisters and older brothers and younger, do you see where I'm going with this? This is how you're supposed to be thinking about the life of the church that I think often we just kind of brush over as not important and that's a huge problem because we treat the church, our regular attendance, like the thing that's only required of us. It's just the thing we do because it's the thing we've always done and I don't know anything different. But what we're robbing ourselves of is this abundance that the prophet is telling Israel that they will enjoy and that is I'm looking around and I've got so many children I don't know what to do with them. Now, to you, maybe that's not good news because you don't like children. But God can heal that too. 
The point is, is that what God is giving Israel, the promise that he's giving is so much more abundant than what is sold today is just like, man, you come to Jesus and all your problems are gonna be solved and all your bills are gonna be paid and you can have the best job you've ever had. That's what Jesus does. No, that's not what Jesus does. But I can tell you what he does do. He washes your sin away. He blots out your transgressions. He removes your guilt and he gives you a family. He gives you a family that cares for you, that walks with you, that shares life with you, that prays for you that brings meals to your home, that labors alongside of your pain, that's what is promised in God's economy. And I think it's a pretty special thing that we shouldn't just gloss over too quickly. Go to verse four. We've now shifted back to the servant because now Israel is presented with this conundrum. Okay, if God is gonna do these things and it's gonna be amazing, and he's gonna wash away all these issues, and he's gonna give us an inheritance, and things are gonna be different. How is he gonna do this? How is this marvelous promise gonna be fulfilled when we are such rebellious people? Verse four, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Oh, now we're back, we're back talking to the servant. So how is the Lord gonna accomplish this? He's gonna accomplish it through the servant. Morning by morning he wakens. He awakens my ear to hear those who are taught the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hide not my face from disgrace and spitting. Any of this sounding familiar? We've got a servant who submits himself to the structure of teaching here on the world even though he invented and created everything we see. He submitted himself to the structure of having a mom and a dad and obeying them. He submitted himself to the structure of going to school and being taught even though he created learning and everything in the world. Could you imagine Jesus sitting in a classroom listening to uh, a Hebrew teacher teach him about the Exodus? And then God spoke to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is probably thinking, yeah, I remember that, it was pretty awesome. That was a wild time. But it wasn't just him submitting and not being rebellious. He submitted even to the point of death, to the point where he gave his back to those who would strike it and his cheeks to those who would pull out his beard. Verse seven, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? All right, so now we get to verse 10 and 11. There's a response here. So he's answering Israel. And he's saying the servant's gonna do all these things. How can you be redeemed, rebellious people? Well, the servant is gonna take your sin for you. He's gonna allow his back to be beaten, so he's gonna take the punishment of your sin. You're not gonna to have to drink that cup of wrath anymore. The servant will do it for you. And so verse 10 and 11, you have a choice. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of this servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But behold, all you who kindle a fire 
who equip yourselves with burning torches. That word equip is a Hebrew word for like fasten to the side of your belt. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. So how is this gonna be accomplished? The servant is going to give his back to be beaten. He's gonna take the punishment and the offer is this. You can use what the servant has given you as a light to walk in this darkness, or you can continue to try and kindle your own flame and equip it to your body. Now I want you to, this is poetry here, and so this is the, 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 the poetic vision of what he's trying to get across that is really important. It's not just important for Israel, but it's important for us because the offer still stands today. After we behold Jesus and all of the work that he has done on your behalf, and he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Cast your sins upon me and I will take the punishment for you and I will blot out your transgressions. Is there something I've got to do? No, just come to me and believe in me. Put your faith in me. That's it. Yes, that's it. That transaction, that belief, that putting your faith in Jesus is like walking in this darkness and having your path lit up with the light of Jesus. When you submit to Jesus, it's like having your entire world lit up with a torch you didn't create and all of a sudden you can see exactly where you're going and all of a sudden things in your life start making sense and things that seem like you constantly tripped over before, now they start making sense in the light of the gospel. Things that made no sense that, that constantly ensnared you before, now you can see them clearly. No, oh, I don't want that anymore because I've got something that I treasure even more. That's, that's, the, that's the one option. Following the servant is like walking in the light of the torch he gives you. But the other option that many of us in, in this world choose is to say, I don't want the torch you're offering. I'd rather fashion my own torch. I'd rather create my own light. I'd rather build my own business and let's make life about that. I'd rather, my, my one goal is just to have a family and so that's my light. I'm gonna fashion this torch and I'm gonna attach it to my side so that I can still kind of use my hands. Well, what do you think happens when you light a torch and stick it in your belt and try to live life? You're gonna get burned. That's the point the prophet is trying to make. Here's the offer that the servant is giving you, those who are in exile and far away. Trust him and let him carry you home. And if you don't, then keep on living your life, fashioning your own torch and wondering why you keep on burning yourself. Now at this point, after this dialogue, the prophet issues a wake-up call, and this is what Isaiah 51 is about. Isaiah 51, one through 11, is a series of wake-up calls. The prophet declares to the people, listen to me, so people, wake up. The way you have been living, it's off. You've been calling yourselves people of God, but you haven't been living like people of God. And then the prophet turns, he calls to the people, and then he turns and he cries out to God, and he says, awake, awake, in verse nine, put on your strength. He's calling unto God, God, wake up. And then in verse 12, the Lord responds. So 51, verse 12. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? 
of the Son of Man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? I'm, you're crying out to me to wake up and I'm looking down at you and all I see is a bunch of people who are afraid of each other. You're afraid of dying. You're afraid of what other people think about you and you want me to wake up? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down into the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I'm the Lord your God who stirs up the seas so that it, its waves roar and the Lord of hosts is his name. And I put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. You're my people. How about you wake yourself up? Wake yourself up. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have been drunk from the hand of the Lord of the cup of his wrath. You who have drunk of the dredges of the bowl to the cup of staggering. See, there's none to guide her. So he's in verse 18, he switches to this, this imagery of, of, a, of a drunk widow. There's none to guide her among all the nations she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the nations she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net, and they're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, you who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over you. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. So the prophet has told the people in exile, God is going to send a servant and the servant is going to take the punishment for you and he is going to redeem you. And the, ser the, the prophet cries out, so because of this news, wake up everybody, wake up. And God, wake up. Wake up to the plight of your people and God responds, I'm not asleep. I'm not the one who needs to wake up. My people need to wake up. I'm going to come to my people and I'm gonna take the wrath away. I'm gonna remove their staggering through life. I'm going to give them victory over sin and darkness and I'm gonna give them inheritance into everlasting life and I'm gonna do all of this through my servant. Now, step back and behold the entirety of what the prophet is saying. We've got an issue, and it's bigger than just the people of Israel in exile in Babylon. The issue is that all mankind is exiled into a land of sin. That all mankind, many of your friends who want nothing to do with Jesus, are living in a way that is most similar like living as a slave 
under a foreign ruler, and that foreign ruler is sin. But God has good news, and it's the good news that he's preached to you and you've accepted, and the good news is that I will call those from far away in, and I will do all of the work to bring them in. And there's nothing that you need to do, I'm gonna do all this work. And we have accepted that message and it is a good message and we love this. But once we accept that message, it's almost like that message, now that we don't experiencing the drunkenness, now we're not experiencing the wrath that was coming our way because God has forgiven us, it's almost like we say, and that's enough. Let's rest right there. The problem is that's not enough. That's, where, that, that's, that's not where this story ends. Because once he calls you in from the nations, he then puts a word inside of your mouth and that word is go and tell the nations what I have done for you. In the New Testament we call it the Great Commission. It's what drove the Apostle Paul to go into unreached parts of the world after Jesus rose from the dead and share this news, that God has taken the cup of wrath away from mankind and Jesus has consumed it. And the kingdom of darkness has now come to an end. Their days are numbered and there is coming a glorious new heaven and a new earth. And it's that message that drove Paul to the point to write things like this, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Whatever I have gained, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I started today with the argument that this entire book, not just Isaiah, but the Bible, is about one message, and that is how God Almighty is redeeming mankind through his servant, Jesus. And I'm making that case for you today for this reason, because if you don't believe that that's what this is all about, then you will make your life about something that it is not this. And I'm telling you, if your life is not 100% about this, then you are wasting your life. Now hear me, I'm not saying sell everything and go to the mission field, go become a pastor. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is where God has birthed you and planted you and prospered you is a mission field for you to spread this one message that has always been the only message. And if everything in your life isn't weighed and measured and valued against that one principle, against that one value, then you are wasting your life. That is what is on the line here. That in Matthew 13, 44, he talks about the kingdom of God being like a treasure buried in a field. And that when you realize what's in that field, you go and you sell everything you have. Not monetarily, not getting rid of every tangible thing you own, but getting rid of the ownership that those things have on your heart. Can you, do you, can you see the difference? 
He's not saying go and be homeless and poor out in the street. He's saying the things that you own, don't let them own you. Those are tools for my kingdom, not things that should own you like idols. And so this is the point of what we're studying today, that Isaiah gave his life to prepare the people of God for this one message, that Paul gave his entire life to share this one message with people who didn't hear it. And we spend most of our lives watering down that one message with whatever thing we think is most prosperous for us on any given day. And I'm telling you, if that's the way that you live your life, you're wasting your life. There's only one message that is worth giving your life to. There is only one treasure hidden in a field that is worth giving your entire life, your affections, your desires, your emotions, your time, your money to, and that is Jesus. Guys, listen, dads, it's not your job. Advancing in your career is not the thing that is worth your time and your emotions and your relationship with your family. That is not what is most important. Teenagers, it is not popularity. It is not having people like you. That is not what you give your life for. That is not the one thing of most importance. The one thing that is worth trading everything for is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless. God bless.